Father, as we come to your word, we thank you for it, and we praise you, and we worship you for who you are. You are righteous, you are holy, you are merciful. And so, Father, give us faith to believe and increase our faith, and give us power to walk in obedience to your precepts for the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So today we're going to be continuing our study of the parables of Christ. We're going to be in Luke chapter 15. Uh, If you got your Bible from out in the foyer, that is page 874. Luke chapter 15. We're going to be covering verses 8 to 10 today. And this is one of the shortest parables that is recorded in Scripture. It is very, very short. Three verses, three very succinct verses, and yet it is nevertheless just packed. It is filled with some very important truths that pertain very much to our lives as Christians. If you remember what we covered last month, last month we covered uh, the first few verses, the first seven verses of this chapter. We looked at the parable of the lost sheep, but as with all parables, uh, we want to consider the context of this parable and and the previous parable. It's actually the same context. Why did Jesus tell the parable of the lost sheep? It's for the same reason that he was going to tell the parable of the lost coin. The reason that Jesus taught these parables was not to conceal truth from the lost, as he sometimes did. Some of his parables were designed to conceal truth. Some of them were designed to reveal truth. This is one of the parables that's designed to reveal truth. He's speaking to unbelievers and trying to point something out to them. Namely, Jesus is telling us what incredible joy God takes in saving sinners. That's the primary reason that God uh, or that Jesus is is telling these parables to tell us about God, to tell us about what stirs God's heart, what gives him joy. But there's a second reason that he is telling these parables and the second reason is to show the Pharisees and us but the the Pharisees specifically in this context who were completely lost spiritually by the way how far their hearts were from God's heart and so in one sense it's also for us because it's a way of measuring how in line our heart is with God's heart when we look at what gives God joy we have to ask ourselves the question does that give us joy as well so you remember, looking back at the, the previous chapter, the, in the previous chapter, Jesus had preached the gospel to the masses. And as the masses were following him, Jesus laid down the terms and conditions for following him, for being a disciple. He said in the previous chapter, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And of course, we should remember that, that word disciple is interchangeable with Christian. Christian. These are the terms and conditions of discipleship. Every aspect of our lives comes under His Lordship. Every aspect. There's nothing that falls outside of His Lordship in our lives. And this is a difficult message. It's one that that kind of rubs people the wrong way because we see how tall the order is. But instead of pushing people away from Him, it drew them to Him. Specifically, Luke draws our attention to two types of people that this drew to Him. Two groups of people, the hopeless and the hypocrites. 
the helpless and the hateful, sinners and Pharisees. So chapter 14 ended with the terms and conditions for following Christ. Chapter 15 begins by telling us that tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Him. And their response, the response of of the hypocrites anyway, the scribes and the Pharisees, was to grumble. They couldn't believe that Jesus, as a rabbi, was actually allowing sinners and tax collectors to come near to Him. These were the lowest of the low elements of society. Prostitutes. In our day and age, whether it be prostitutes, drug dealers, gangbangers, it would be all kinds of people that we don't really want to come into contact with too much. And the Pharisees and the scribes can't believe that Jesus is rubbing shoulders with these people. That they couldn't believe that Jesus would do this because no self-respecting rabbi would do something like that. Why not? Because they didn't think that that was something that God would do. See, in their estimation, in the estimation of these hypocrites, these, these Pharisees and scribes, God didn't want to have anything to do with sinners. He certainly wasn't going to draw near to them or draw them close to Him. He wouldn't touch them in their minds. He wouldn't heal them in their minds. He certainly would not come down and eat with them in their minds. And so this was the basis of their judgment against Jesus. And it's an issue that comes up multiple times in the book of Luke. The fact that Jesus associated with and talked to, and conversed with the people that they viewed as just scum of the earth, was all the evidence that these religious leaders needed to deny the reality that Jesus was God. And so they articulate their complaint against Jesus in chapter 15, verse 2. Look at what they say in verse 2. They say, this man, speaking of Jesus, this man receives sinners and eats with them. The language here, we have to understand the language here, is very, very strong. We, we miss it in English, but in, in the original Greek, the, the language is, is very, very strong. The word that gets translated here as receives, is usually, the word receives is usually translated from the Greek word dekomai, dekomai which means to accept or to, uh, to take up. But the word that's used here is prosdekomai. Prosdecomai, which really means more than to just accept. It means to embrace. If you consider Paul's instruction in Romans chapter 16, verse 2, where he instructs the church in Rome to embrace or to welcome Phoebe in a way that's worthy of the saints, you understand that it's really a word that means to welcome with eagerness or to, to eagerly receive. And that's the way Jesus received sinners. He wasn't casual about coming near to them. He wasn't ambivalent, like he, he couldn't just, he just couldn't care either way whether he came close to them or not. No, he eagerly received them. He eagerly welcomed them. He embraced them. He cared for them. He put his arms around them, and he ate with them. We need to understand the significance of eating with somebody in ancient Israel. It was a way of showing approval. It was a way of showing affirmation. It was a way of showing that you accepted them. And he did it eagerly. You, you, you break bread with them. I mean, that, you, you think, hey, that has something to do with communion. 
It's a way of showing fellowship, right? It's a, it's a way of saying that, that we, we welcome each other, we belong to each other. We eat the same thing that everybody else is eating. It was a sign of approval, affirmation, and acceptance. So in the minds of these religious leaders, Jesus was not only embracing these scum-of-the-earth sinners and tax collectors, but He did it eagerly, and by doing so, in their minds, He was approving of their sin. He was affirming the value of sinners. And in their minds, that's something that God would not do. In their minds, God would only receive someone who did everything that they could to fulfill all of the demands of the law. He would never do such a thing toward the lost in their minds. In fact, we know what was the purpose of Jesus' ministry. He states it elsewhere. What was the purpose of His ministry? It was to seek and save the lost. If you want to boil it down to everything that he, that he came for, everything that the Incarnation was all about, He came to seek and save the lost. And so Jesus, His ministry is being brought into question here. His ministry, His purpose, is being scrutinized here. And so Jesus responded to their outrage by telling them three parables. First, as we saw last month, the parable of the lost sheep then the parable of the lost coin, then the parable of the lost son, which is the parable we'll be covering next month. And if you'll remember, the parable of the lost sheep was was just a very simple and a a very, very straightforward story. The sheep is lost, the sheep is sought, the sheep is found, and the sheep is recovered, brought into the safety of the fold, and the shepherd rejoices. Pretty simple story. And the point, if you'll remember, as Jesus stated, was, quote, that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There are a lot of implications loaded into that statement, by the way. But let me just focus on two. The first is that God takes great, great joy in saving sinners. Not just in forgiving sinners, but in freeing us from the bondage of the will, as Luther would have said. From freeing us, he he takes great joy from freeing us from the obligation to sin, from the power of sin. And of course, he will rejoice in removing us from the presence of sin one day. God takes great joy in saving sinners. That's the first point. The second is that the religious leaders, these hypocrites, these self-righteous people who felt like they needed no repentance, brought no joy to God. And part of the reason Jesus is telling these parables is to make sure they understand that. That they understand that God isn't rejoicing over their self-righteousness. He's not rejoicing over their refusal to turn from their sin. So these parables are are really about what gives God joy and what therefore causes much joy throughout heaven. What causes joy to echo throughout the chambers of heaven. Now, when you think of heaven, what types of things come to your mind? What do you think of? For some of you, maybe you think of peacefulness or tranquility or uh, maybe maybe you think of of singing or maybe you think of 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 sinlessness not only sinlessness but the, the thought of sinning never even entering your mind or maybe you think of fellowship in heaven and all of these things are true it it is all of these things and more but i would put the word joyful before each one of these things 
It is a place of joyful peacefulness, joyful tranquility, joyful sinlessness, joyful singing, and joyful fellowship with God and the saints. Jesus tells us that He will welcome His people who were faithful stewards into heaven by saying something along the lines of, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your Master. Heaven is a place of great joy. Holy, righteous, never-ending joy. But this isn't just what heaven is all about. We don't have to wait till heaven to experience that joy. This is what the Christian life is all about as well. Peter wrote to the first century church, which was being severely persecuted, by the way. These people's lives were on the line every single day. And this is what he says to him: Though you have not seen him, speaking of Christ, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You rejoice with joy. And you'd say, well, that's, that's kind of redundant, isn't it? In a way, yeah, but it's Peter's way of just expressing the inexpressible joy of knowing and being known by Christ. Now, joy, biblically, doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as happiness or comfort. It doesn't always involve comfort. Jesus went to the cross with joy, but it would be a, a pretty tough argument, pretty tough case to argue that, that he went there just, just happy and comfortable. Uh, I don't think so. You know, Paul had joy. Paul had joy when he was writing letters from prison and when he wrote, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, Rejoice. He's saying that from prison. He's saying that while he's chained to a guard. He's probably hungry. He's probably sleep deprived. He's very uncomfortable. And yet, the book of Philippians is his most joyful book. No, the joy that we have in this world is a different kind of comfort. It is a comfort. But it's not an earthly comfort. It's a heavenly comfort. We have joy that our sins are forgiven. We have joy that we were enemies with God, but now we are at peace with God. And if our hearts are in line with God's heart, we too have joy over the salvation of sinners. Joy is the motivation for God's salvation of sinners. Ultimately, everything that He does is for His glory, but His glory gives Him joy. Doing things for His glory brings Him joy. So the subject of this chapter is God's joy in saving sinners. And we've seen Jesus liken it to the joy that a shepherd would have in retrieving a lost sheep, rescuing them, putting them in the safety of the fold. And now the parable of the lost coin will illustrate God's joy from a different angle. So let's look at chapter 15, verses 8 to 10. Jesus says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Three very short verses 
And yet it says so much about who God is. It, it says so much about what stirs God's heart, about what brings joy to heaven. Now, let's make no mistake about it. The Pharisees would have been somewhat insulted that Jesus had likened them to a shepherd, that He had forced them to imagine themselves in the shoes of a shepherd in the previous parable. Because shepherds were dirty. You know, in, in the physical sense, they were dirty, and they were also viewed as unclean according to the law because sheep are dirty animals. They're not known for being hygienic. Uh, the shepherds had to deal with things like manure and cuts that were bleeding and, and things like that. They, they had to be able to, to get their hands dirty, so to speak. Not to mention the fact that the smells of the sheep were carried by the shepherds, and so the shepherds were never welcome in the temple, much less inside the city. The shepherds were defiled. They were unclean. They were lowly. They were outcast. And so the previous parable forced these religious leaders to put themselves in the shoes of these people whom they looked down upon. And this parable is exactly the same. Instead of putting them in the shoes of a shepherd, though, Jesus forces them to put themselves in the shoes and to see things from the perspective of a woman. He starts off by saying, what woman? And you can just hear them groan as he's saying that. They cringe at the thought of being instructed to consider the perspective of someone that they considered to be lesser, of what they considered to be the lesser gender. See, in Middle Eastern culture, one of the lowest and most degrading things that you could do to somebody was compare a man to a woman. Them are fighting words, is what we'd say in our culture. Jesus knew. Jesus knew the culture. He knew what was going to insult them. He knew what was going to humble them. He knew that these hypocrites, that these religious leaders looked down on a lot of people that they shouldn't have been looking down on. And so really, Jesus is implicitly and mercifully humbling them. He's humbling them. He's trying to bring their self-esteem, their ego, their self-perception down, not just one notch, but a lot. And why is that important? Because only the humble can inherit the kingdom of God. Psalm 25.9 says this, it says, He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His way. And this is a principle that we see throughout Scripture. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Right. This is throughout Scripture. Humble. God, God loves humility. He honors humility. That's the type of person who will enter into the kingdom. Somebody who humbles themselves before God. But what does the Bible say about the opposite? What does the Bible say about somebody who's proud? What does the Bible say about somebody who's self-righteous? What does the Bible say about somebody who is self-exalting? Psalm chapter 5, verse 5 sums it up nicely. It says, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. In fact, the boastful are mentioned in the list of wicked and depraved, godless evildoers at the end of Romans 1. Paul's writing of those whom God hands over to a debased mind, and he says this, he says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. 
inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And right in the middle of that, boastful. Boastful. So there's a serious problem with being boastful. There's a serious problem with being self-righteous, self-exalting, proud. And Jesus is humbling them. First by forcing themselves to imagine themselves as lowly shepherds, and now by forcing them to compare themselves to a woman. And not just any woman, by the way. He's forcing them to compare themselves to a poor woman. By the way, I think it's at least worth, worth a side note that while God reveals Himself primarily as a masculine father, uh, it, it, He reveals Himself in the masculine sense, uh, He doesn't mind being compared to a woman. There are several places in Scripture where we find God compared to a woman. He's, he gets likened to a woman. The image of God is found just as much in a woman as it's found in a man. The idea that one gender is somehow superior or better or whatever than the other is completely unbiblical. So Jesus presents this hypothetical scenario for these hypocrites. He says, what if you're this woman and you've got ten silver coins? Now, depending on your, your translation, it may say uh, drachma, ten drachma. A drachma being roughly equivalent to the value of a denarius, one day's wage. And he says, and, and you, you know, you're, you're this woman and, and you lose one of these ten coins that you have. You only have ten coins and you lose one of them. What do you do? Now, we need to understand that this woman is poor. She's, she's very poor. She has enough to survive for 10 days. She has enough. If her husband were to die and couldn't work, she can survive for 10 days. How many of you would feel real comfortable with that? That's poor. So she's poor. She's got enough to survive for 10 days. That's not very much. So this is not a wealthy woman. She doesn't have much. Her husband probably works from sun up to sundown just trying to make ends meet and to put some kind of food on the table. The types of homes that the poor working class lived in in the first century Israel were very small. They were very, very dingy. You do realize, by the way, that windows are kind of a modern invention they didn't have windows in their homes. They may have had a hole kind of toward the corner of the ceiling to let out smoke if they had cooked inside. But there were no windows. It's very dingy, very dark inside. And so here she is trying to figure out where this coin could be. Probably somewhere on the floor. The floor could have been either dirt, that's the most likely scenario, or stone. But finding a lost coin in these types of conditions wouldn't have been easy. And so what does she do? She lights a lamp and she starts searching frantically for this coin. She doesn't have much, so this means a lot to her. She starts searching frantically for this coin. And so she's, she's looking in the corners. She, she goes next door and she borrows her neighbor's broom. And she's sweeping up dirt in her abode, trying to find a shimmer off of this silver coin with the lamp. She lifts up and looks under the few furnishings she's been able to afford in her tiny abode. And Jesus says, don't you think it's reasonable? to expect that she would search diligently until she finds it. 
This is the only place, by the way, in the Bible where we find that word, where, where this is the word that gets translated diligently. It's derived from a word that means to take care of. To take care of. So part of taking care of your money is keeping it secure. And if you want to keep your money secure, you take care of it. You put it in a place where it's safe. But that wasn't always something that people in the first century could do. So she, she's lost this coin. She's got to find it. She must secure it. So she searches diligently until she finds it. She doesn't, uh, it doesn't tell us, Jesus doesn't tell us uh, how long she searches for. It doesn't, uh, he doesn't insert a, a time frame into the parable, probably because the point is that she was going to search diligently until she found it. So it's not like it just disappeared into thin air. Coins don't do that, no matter what a magician might have you think. It's not like it vanished into thin air, it's somewhere. It, it, it's gone somewhere. And so she searches diligently until she finds it. The coin was important to her. It was precious to her. She didn't have much, and so she she valued it. And because she valued it, she sought it. And she sought it. And she sought it until she recovered it. So the outline of this parable is really the same as the parable of the lost sheep. Something's lost, something is sought, something is recovered, and then what? And then it's celebrated. Then they celebrate the fact that they found it. Jesus says, and when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Now, granted, it is obviously a bit of an exaggeration, it's hyperbolic to imagine that she would throw this huge party over finding one coin, especially since uh, you know, the, the, the cost of throwing a party is going to be a lot more than what the coin was worth. But the point of the parable isn't the value of the coin. The point of the parable is the value of the lost. The point of the parable is the inherent value of the lost whom Jesus had come to seek and to redeem. Now think about it. What he's trying to get them to do is, is, is think about this. If a, if a coin that was lost and is found is, is worthy of celebration, how much more is a repentant, redeemed soul worth celebrating? That's what gives God joy. And that's the point that Jesus is trying to drive home to these prideful, self-exalting, stiff-necked, proud and religious leaders. And of course, they could see why a woman would rejoice over finding a coin that represented a day's wage. They get the point. She's poor. They get the point. She valued the coin. She needed the coin. She wanted the coin. But what they don't get is that God valued the sinners and the tax collectors the rebels, the destitute, the hopeless, the downtrodden, the outcasts, people just like you and me. And so Jesus puts the application in plain language for them in verse 10. He says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's understand that this isn't saying that the angels rejoice, although they do. I would say they do. No, this is specifically saying, Jesus specifically says that the joy 
in heaven is before the angels of God. That is, it's in front of, it's, it's in their presence, in, in the presence of these angels of God, okay? So what or, or who is before the angels of God? God is. God is. God's the one who leads the celebration in heaven. God's the one who has joy over the sinner who repents. See, Jesus is addressing people who who didn't understand. He's addressing people who didn't believe that God valued sinners or that He rejoiced over the repentance that they had unto salvation. See, these, these religious leaders didn't preach a message that God could save them or would save them or wanted to save them or even valued them. They had no idea that the joy of God filled heaven over something that to them seemed so scandalous and so backwards in their minds. And so Jesus is confronting and correcting their error. The charge that these religious leaders we're faced with is that they not only have hearts that are far away from God's heart, as evidenced by the fact that they hated what God finds joy in and they loved what God expressly says He hates. So the charge is not only that their hearts are far away from God's heart, but it's also that they don't bring God joy. Why not? Because they refused to repent. They refused to be humble. They refused to turn away from their self-righteousness. They refused to turn from their sin. As far as they were concerned, they didn't need to repent. And as far as they were concerned, they didn't need to associate with or seek the lost. So just so we're clear, Jesus was the good shepherd from the parable of the lost sheep. He's the one who calls out to His sheep. They know His voice and they follow Him and He secures them in His fold. They don't seek Him. He seeks them. And in this parable, Jesus is likened to the woman. How much effort did that coin put into being sought? Zero. The coin didn't ask to be sought. The initiative was entirely the woman's. And in the same way, when it comes to salvation... Jesus is the one who seeks. Jesus is the only one who seeks. Jesus is the one who saves. Jesus is the one who redeems. Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And only through Jesus can one come to the Father. But Jesus is the one who does the Father's bidding, who comes and seeks and saves the lost. He seeks them, He finds them, and He secures them. See, if you found Him, if you found Christ, it's only because He found you first. He found you first. It is Christ who was sent by the Father to sift through the filth and the disgusting elements and the dirt of this world to seek and save those who are lost. Why does He do it? Because it's the Father's will. And because they belong to Him. Jesus says in John 6.37, He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. All. Everyone given to Christ by the Father will come to Him. He seeks them. And He seeks them diligently. He calls out to them. The sovereign, effectual calling of God. 
and he finds them. He finds every single one of them. He finds all those whose names were written in the book of life from the foundations of the world. He finds them and he rescues them because it brings him glory and joy to lavish his grace upon them. This is the love that God has toward the lost. This is the heart of God. This is what brings him joy. There's no other religion in the entire world that proclaims or or heralds a God who saves by grace alone. There's no other religion in the world which teaches that God is the one who takes the initiative, that God is the one who seeks after man. No other religion teaches that. In every other religion, it is always man pursuing God, man seeking God, man trying to please God, man trying to earn his salvation, man depriving himself, man even punishing himself to earn God's love. And the truth of the matter is that it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that at all. Salvation is all of grace and it is all of God. In Christ, God seeks. In Christ, God rescues. In Christ, God redeems. In Christ, we are His. We are adopted as children of the Almighty Most High God. Salvation is all of grace. There is no God like our God. Glorious in all of His ways. Strong enough to melt our hardened hearts like a snowflake falling into a boiling cauldron of hot water. And what's our response? What's the application to this glorious truth? What do we do in light of what Jesus is teaching here? In light of seeing what gives God great joy? First of all, I'd say that it's to examine ourselves. Are we humble? Are we self-exalting? Or do we see that Christ is our only hope? We humble ourselves before the Lord and we renounce any and all sense of self-righteousness. Because we have as much to boast in for our salvation as a coin does for having been lost and then being found. Zero. We can boast in as much as that coin. Absolutely nothing. Salvation is a gift from God. God doesn't just wait for us to hopefully receive it. He changes our hearts. He opens the eyes of our hearts. And He unveils the irresistible beauty of His glorious grace for us to behold. And we're not only found. We are redeemed. We come under His ownership. We are purchased. We belong to Christ. He's not only Savior. He's Lord. He's Lord. He who does not renounce all that He has cannot be my disciple. He is Lord of all. Every aspect of our lives. He's not just our Savior. He's our Lord. He owns us. And that should humble us. That should cause us to walk in humbleness before the Lord. That should cause some type of change in our lives one way or another. It must produce fruit. And let's not overlook the common aspect that we see between the previous parable and this parable, between the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, the element over which heaven specifically celebrates is repentance. Repentance. What does it mean to repent? 
It means to believe in Christ and to pursue Him instead of sin. It means to turn away from our sin and instead to pursue Christ as our greatest treasure, as our Lord, as our Savior. Listen, the person who thinks they're good with God but refuses to repent does not cause God joy. That's what the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees was. They thought they were good with God. They didn't see any need to repent. They didn't repent because they didn't realize what rebellious, vile sinners they were. So they, they had this idea of, about you know, who God is, how God works, what gives God joy. They had all these ideas, but they were all wrong. What they worshipped was really a, 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 a souped-up version of themselves. They had created God in their image. They had an idea about who God was, but they were so wrong. That wasn't who God is. That's not what God does. God doesn't just welcome the self-righteous. That's not the way it works. Repentance is central to the gospel message. How does a person know if they've been found by Christ? It's not because you said a prayer. It's not because you came forward at a service. It's not because you filled out a little card. It's none of these things. The way to know that you have been found by Christ, it's not because you go to church. It's because you've repented. And you continue to repent. You give up the pursuit of the sin and the self-interest. And you pursue Christ. And you pursue His purposes. And you pursue His glory and His joy instead of your own. This parable forces us to look at ourselves, forces us to examine ourselves and look for the fruit of repentance in our lives because that is central to the gospel. Secondly, I think this parable forces us to consider our attitudes toward the lost, toward people that we would view as being the lower elements of society, people who we wouldn't want to dine with, people who we wouldn't want to rub shoulders with, people we wouldn't want to get too close with. How do you feel about those elements in society? I think there are four possibilities. If you, if you want to boil it all down, do, do you hate them and shut the door on, on reaching out to them? That obviously isn't biblical. That doesn't jive with this passage at all. Maybe you're, you're just ambivalent. Maybe we're just ambivalent. You know, we, we couldn't care really one way or another if they come to faith in Christ. That's between them and God. That's the way our culture operates. Ambivalence. It's between you and God until uh, they're not ambivalent when you try to say, hey, you need to get right with God through faith in Christ. So you can hate them. You can be ambivalent. Neither one of those is biblical. Maybe you keep the door open for them, but you wait for them to come to you. I think we're getting closer there. The door's open, so we're getting closer, but I would still say this isn't the attitude that pleases God, or this isn't the attitude that God is looking for. Not quite. The fourth option, do we pursue them? Do we pursue them? I honestly don't see any other options, biblically. You can hate them, you can be ambivalent toward them or not care about them, you can welcome them, or you can pursue them. See, here's the principle. We need to do more than just get the gospel right. We do need to get the gospel right. And repentance is central to the gospel. We need to get the gospel right, but we need to get the gospel out. 
we need to bring it to the world. This parable reminds us that we have a mission as a church to know Christ and to make Him known. To exalt Him. To glorify Him. To bring the gospel into the darkness. To be light in the darkness. Because Christ is still seeking and saving the lost. And He's doing it how? Through His people. Through the proclamation of His Word. Faith comes by hearing. And we have to take that mission very, very seriously. Because Jesus took this mission very, very seriously. We must not only know the Gospel message, we must share it. We must get the Gospel right, and we must get the Gospel out. And if your heart is aligned with God's heart, if your will is to see His will be done on earth, if you love what He loves, if you hate what He hates, if your will is to see His will be done, then it's going to bring you great joy. Not just satisfaction. It's going to bring you great joy to participate in God's mission of seeking and saving the lost. Seeing them come to repentance and faith in Christ. That's our mission as a church. We must get the gospel right. And we must get the gospel out. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come before you humbled by this because we realize that all too often we think we're good enough. All too often we don't look to you when we're in distress, we look to our own wisdom. And when things are going well, we forget that you ransomed us. So Father, thank you for humbling us with your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would grow us, strengthen us, edify us in Christ's likeness. Oh, Father, please, by the power of Your Spirit abiding within us, teach us to love the things that You love and to hate the things that You hate. Grant us the wisdom to pursue Christ above all things and to find joy in the things that stir joy inexpressible in Your heart. May we, too, find inexpressible joy in those things. Father, we do pray for Linwood and, and beyond, for the lost. And we pray, Lord, that you would use us to share the light, to share the gospel. Give us the conviction, Lord, to not just get the gospel right, but to get it out in obedience to your will for the glory of Christ. Amen. 
This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.